for you. If you would, turn in your Bible to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. Let's begin this morning by standing to do honor to the reading of God's Word as we begin again in verse 16. Again here, John has recorded this interaction with Nicodemus and the response, the the direct dialogue between Christ and Nicodemus. And here we have commentary starting in verse 16 through 21 on what has just been said. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his works should be Exposed, But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. These are God's words to you and I today, beloved. Would you pray with me? Father, we come before you today thankful for your grace and your mercy upon us, your children. We're so thankful for the love that you've shown us through Christ. Father, we're so thankful for the regenerating work of washing our souls and making us anew and Father, we're thankful for the joy of what it is to come here and again hear these truths. Father, I pray that we would be molded into the image of Christ today. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So we've discussed kind of the context to John 3.16, that there is a pervasive fallen darkness in the world. The world is a fallen mess, relationally, intellectually, spiritually, all of it is broken. That is the context of John 3.16. We find in John chapter 1 verses 9 through 13, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. It makes it so clearly there that His power and His power alone is what creates uh, the church. We sang this morning, y'all, we sang some good theology this morning. I was sitting there thumbing through as as we were singing, just rejoicing in all of the truth. And the last song we sang... Um, she is his new creation by the water and the word that that by the regenerating power of God that is how the true church comes into existence what a joy it is to know today that that is a reality that without the regenerating uh, power of God we would not receive the the savior and we learned last well not last week but the week before last week the, the last time we were in this text that God shows his 
His love towards this world. This, this, this passage clearly demonstrates that, but we have to be careful not to truncate the love of God into some sentimental understanding when we come to this verse and we made distinctions of God's love of beneficence. That is His disposition towards the entirety of His creation to be uh, loving. That, that is his, his bent towards the, the world. And that comes to pass in so many ways in His love of benevolence. So there is a distinction between His beneficence and His benevolence. His beneficence being His disposition. His benevolence being the way in which He acts towards a world that is hostile towards Him. And His benevolence comes in His general graces, His, his common graces, uh, even unregenerate people have the joy of knowing what it is to eat good food and enjoy the harvest and, and um, be married and have children. So, so God is loving and benevolent in so many ways in His benevolence. But then we went on to understand uh, of His complacent love. That is His love for those uniquely that He redeems. And, and those are the individuals. That, that is the love that He has for His Son in particular, and for all who are in Christ. And so the way that we know that we are redeemed is by considering whether or not we are in Christ. Because that is where the full expression of His love comes. It's through the Lord Jesus Christ. Many people even who have borne the name of Christian have made so many arguments that there are other ways we might be saved apart from Christ. But friends, we are not in the love of God apart from being in the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. You know, it's interesting, and this has been my contention for the past several weeks, and I've been wrestling through this text. How do I, I, I know that y'all are going to probably laugh at thinking that this is a genuine struggle in my life, but I really do think through, how, how do I concisely put forward this truth? Uh, how do I concisely deal with this text so that it's understandable, that we can get our minds wrapped around it? And, and one of the contentions is just that it's so easy for us to come and to play games with this one verse, to uh, manipulate its words, to, to, to just alter it a little bit, and by so doing, to make a complete monstrosity out of John 3.16. It happens so often in the church today. As a way of illustration, I want to read to you some words that are probably familiar from our civic life. Uh, so words that we've all grown up with, if we've grown up in America. As the words that are found in our Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident. That all men are created equal. And that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights. That among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of of happiness. Now these words aren't front page news. Probably several of us in here were forced to memorize them at some time and they come to mind quickly. Uh, they're, they're kind of old hat to us. But what might be new, what you might not know, is that these are not the original words that were drafted by Jefferson and the committee that was tasked with writing the Declaration of Independence. In fact, in June, that would be before July when, when we celebrate the the, the Declaration of Independence. In, in June of 1776, Jefferson wrote to Benjamin Franklin and asked, Will Dr. Franklin be so good as to pursue, peruse excuse me, this document and suggest alterations as his more enlarged view of the subject will dictate? 
Well, if Franklin would have left the draft that he was given unaltered, the words of our Declaration of Independence would read this way. We hold these truths to be sacred and undeniable. But that's not what the way that they read today. If you go to the National Archives and you see our Declaration of Independence, the copy that is there that was actually signed months after uh, the Declaration was originally put forth and, and, and sent over, you will find the words, we hold these truths to be self-evident. So the question is, why is self-evident there instead of sacred and undeniable? Well, quite simply, it's because the Enlightenment was in full swing and there were some who envisioned a country that would move forward. And you have to understand the impulse of the Enlightenment. The impulse of the Enlightenment is we need to shed all of the teaching, all of the dogma of the Reformation, and we need to move on into maturity and think for ourselves that the impulse of the Enlightenment is we need to sever what is divine but keep the fruit of the divine. We need to get rid of God, but we need to keep a hold of the structures that we have and we benefit from in the providence of God. And so Franklin's altering these words sacred and undeniable to self-evident are a direct reflection of a shift in thinking that, that these aren't sacred truths. Rather, they are something that we can just know by being human. Our poor Dr. Franklin would be so disappointed if he got to live in the year 2023 because, well, the friends, the reality is from the time that this country enacted abortion on demand until recently when that law was rescinded through judicial action, that wasn't a self-evident truth. All life was not held sacredly. It wasn't treated in a way that would bring honor and glory to the Lord. Deism has crept its way into so many areas of our thinking. And this rationalistic, we will just think about things apart from their original meaning. And, 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 and here's the question that you're going to have. What does all of that have to do with John 3.16? Good question. Well, friends, I, I, again, I think that the, the answer to that is is we live in a day and age that, that really models what was happening in Ben Franklin's changing of those two words to the one phrase self-evident. And that is we live in a day and age where we want to delight in all of the benefits of God all the while seeking to run from God and escape His sovereign rule. We live in the same mindset. Uh, we think that we can have the, the, the spiritual delight of fellowship and of community and all of those things, but we can do it somehow away from the way, uh, from the, the, the divine work of the Lord. Uh, uh, friends, uh, this works out simply in the distinction, I think, between theologies that say that ultimately the church is comprised of those that God has born afresh and anew by His divine will alone, and then those church movements that say, well, well ultimately it's up to us. We have to decide. We are the ones that decide whether we're born again. Now, do you see the same shift in thinking? One is we live under the providence of God. The other says, look, God, you've done all you need to do. We'll take it from here. Well, friends, we know from reading our Bible what happens when we take it from the Lord and act in any uh, way. And, and here's the question that we have of, and really the tie-in with John 3.16. 
Friends, we live, and, and some have made the argument that America is living on forward momentum that came from, from the, the Christian foundation that we have. Uh, that we morally have been launched into history and that, that the wheels are starting to slow down and we're falling into immorality. And that's true, isn't it? I mean, we can see that in our own generation. I think we need to ask the question where, uh, there's no denying that when our great country was founded, and you can argue one way or another of, of whether you agree with, with many things in its founding, but there was a lot of really uh, thoughtful uh, men. There were a lot of thoughtful men during that time. There, were, there, there was a sense of some morality. It wasn't perfect. But I, I think the question we have to ask is, where did all of that come from? Well, it came from ultimately God's providence, but I think it came from men who were rooted in an understanding of what the love of God really was. Uh, they, they, they didn't twist and emotionally distort verses like John 3.16. Now, I'm not arguing with you this morning that there's, there's, it's only in our generation that there were those kinds of men, but I think it was unique in that particular time. So as we move into this verse, we need to come and, and, and see the reality that, look, it's easy, and this is the reason for the illustration also of, of the Declaration of Independence. Ben Franklin changed two words to one phrase and ultimately altered, I think, the structure of how we reason through that Declaration of Independence. It's really interesting, though. Sorry, side note, squirrel. That, that Franklin was intent on changing sacred and undeniable to, to self-evident, and then the very next sentence, he reiterates that there's a Creator God. Um, and so deism wasn't the problem for Franklin. It was Franklin didn't want the God of the Bible. That was the real problem. Um, but, but the whole point is, ultimately, by just trifling with two words, there's a, a great change in meaning. Well, friends, I would contend with you this morning that as we come to John 3.16 again, there have been many men who have trifled, not with the, not, not, not with the translation of John 3.16, but more with the interpretation of John 3.16. And one of the, the, the moves that is made uh, so quickly in interpreting John 3.16, uh, what happens is we confuse the subject of the sentence. Uh, we, we look at we look at this verse and we make the ground from one particular issue instead of what it really is. Again, the subject of a sentence, brief English lesson, is the person, the place, or the thing that is performing the action of the sentence. The subject here is clearly the God who demonstrates His love to the world. But so many dubious interpretations make the whole point and the scope of this one passage the world, that the, 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 the redeeming love of God is ultimately just uh, an all-consuming, sappy, emotional disposition that God has towards the world. But friends, we have to temper our understanding of John 3.16 with the reality that the Bible tells us that God is, is angry with sinners every day. His wrath is against all of those who are opposed to Him. All of those who are dead in their trespasses and sins. So here's, 
Here's what I want us to do this morning is, is just simply to slow down a little bit and take the words for what they mean. There's a novel idea. To, to look at this passage in four distinct movements that make it very clear what is being communicated to us here today. And, and to do that, I, I want us to illustrate this in our minds. The first phrase that we have to look at is, For God so loved the world. And I, wanna, I want us to think about that phrase as though it were a, a, a lake, a large body of water, massive. Uh, someone once said that you could no more comprehend the love of God than a fish could swallow an entire lake or all of the water in the ocean. Uh, what we have in this one phrase, for God so loved the world, is ultimately the, the headwater of this verse. And here God is making a display of His love to the world so large and so clear and so convincing that it is not uh, mistakable. It's interesting, isn't it, that we live in a day and age post-enlightenment where we in our pride and human arrogance say we will no longer be people who are shackled by theology, but we will be people of reason. When God sent His Son into the world, He was making a display of His loving kindness, His beneficence, His benevolence, and His complacent love that was so clear and convincing that if we were still reasonable people, we would bow down and worship Him for all of eternity. But what happens is, and we see it in these verses, that, that, that the light came into the world, but the world didn't know Him. The world rejected this display of love. It's been twisted uh, our, our reason. Uh, reason in and of itself is viewed by the modern mind as the instrument by which we can know everything and the human society will flourish. Now, there's a lot of, 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 of common grace in the gift of reasoning things out. When I make my wife mad, and that doesn't happen often, I'm thankful that there's reason. Let's sit down and reason this out. If not, I wouldn't be standing here this morning. Reason is a gift, but but pure reason being what we pin all of our hopes to is a lost exercise because we see in the reality of fallen humanity running from the display of God's love in the Lord Jesus Christ that our reason is twisted. It's depraved. Instead of, instead of glorifying God, we turn inward and we idolize ourselves. And some of you may say, well, prove that. That's a big claim. Well, I think this one verse would probably be one of the great uh, proof texts or illustrations of how we turn the glories of God in on ourselves and seek to make things about us and not the living God. Religious men come to John 3.16 and they say time and time again, you see, this verse teaches that God wants to save everybody. He just doesn't do it. We take a verse, for God so loved the world, is not a verse that is heralding something about the world in the positive. It's something that's heralding the positive about God. That in spite of the world being so wicked and depraved and fallen and twisted in its reason, yet God demonstrated His love towards you and I. Towards every generation. The, the, the joy of John 3.16 is that God looked beyond our sin, beyond who we are in the flesh, and He displayed His love in such a way that it's undeniable. And yet there are still people who will say to me, Jay, God could never forgive me. He gave His only begotten Son, and you think that He couldn't love you? 
This display makes this absolutely unmistakable. That this verse is about God, and yet so many people will come and they will make the entirety of this verse about the world and not about God. God's love has always been displayed to His his people, but here it is made very plain and clear. And it's interesting in in this in John's Gospel, John begins in, in dealing with the nation of Israel and pointing uh, to the coming of Christ. But very quickly, after Jesus' uh, discourse here with Nicodemus, there is a pivoting and an understanding that God is not only displaying His love to Israel, His covenant people, God is displaying His love to the entire cosmos. He's displaying His love to the entire world. Secondly, we need to come to the second part of this verse. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. So if we think about the love of God being displayed to the entire world as a lake, every lake ultimately in its overflowing issues forth in some sort of a tributary into a stream. So, so here we have the stream flowing rapidly from the love of God in such a way that that love is demonstrating in the sending of His Son in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we need to see with clarity here why the Son died on the cross for our sins, for your sins and for my sins. And it's not because we believe that He sent His Son. God didn't wait until there was a a mass of people who were acting right and believing right and honoring Him according to His Word before He sent His Son into the world. God didn't look down the tunnel of time and say, okay, I see how this will play out. There'll be enough people. Now I'll send Jesus. The impetus for the sending of the Son was not anything that is conditioned in you or I. The impetus for God sending His Son into the world is His own glory and His own love. It's Him expressing His love to fallen people who He knows. Listen, friends. John 1, at one time, was new to the human race. It would, have been, it would have been news, right? We've read it several times and we've become accustomed to it. it was, so when Jesus shows up and He's rejected by His own people, He's rejected by the religious leaders, that wasn't a surprise. God wasn't conditioning the sending of His Son on His people responding rightly to His Son. He displays His love in His Son in spite of how the world will respond to his son. So we understand that all of the force of the plan of redemption happened for one reason, and that is that God so loved the world. It's not because of his beneficent, beneficent love, just his disposition, ultimately, or his benevolent love. It's because of the love that he has for his son and the glory that he shows to his son and shares with his son that he sent him into the world to redeem some. It is not that Christ came and so God loved. It is that God so loved that Christ came. Do you remember that narrative of God causing, calling Abraham to sacrifice Isaac to take his, his son into the wilderness and, and, and there to sacrifice him unto the Lord. We, we, you'll remember from Genesis chapter 22, kind of the climax of that, leading into the climax of that event, 
We find these words, And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine taking uh, the instruments for sacrifice and laying them on your son and setting out to the place where you will sacrifice your son, believing that that is in fact the, 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 the act that you will carry through? And he took his hand... Uh, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife so that they both uh, so that both of them together excuse me so that they went both of them together and Isaac said to his father Abraham my father and he said here I am son now think about this just pause and think about this statement and having to say this to your son who you love dearly who you've watched grow he says behold the fire and the wood but where is the lamb for a burnt offering And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And so both of them went together. God will provide the lamb. That is in an Old Testament economy, but here we find in the New Testament economy, John declaring to you and I, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Abraham thought that he was going to have to give his son. God actually did. We find here in Genesis uh, 22 again in verses 11 and 12, but the angel of the Lord called to him and from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for I know that you fear the Lord, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Now friends, do we not remember the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8 when he declares... What then shall we say of these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give Him give us all things? God not only sent His Son, but He didn't hold back from delivering Him up for all of us. In the providence of God, there are many times, beloved, when you and I are dealt difficult things, where we suffer, where, where we are called upon to live faithfully in the sight of God in difficult circumstances, but no one has faced a more harsh, unmerited punishment than that which Christ suffered on the tree for you and I, that we would live. As I've studied through this verse, there is all the wonder... There is all the wonder... I meant to be emphatic here. I didn't mean for it to go that way. There is all the wonder of the world in, in, in one word in, in this particular verse, if we, if we back up. We're, we're looking at the stream right now, but we have to back up and think about the ultimate demonstration, the love of God overflowing into the sending of His Son. And we find in John 3.16 one word that I think should capture all of our attention, and it's the word so. For God so loved the world. He loved the world perfectly. He loved the world patiently. He loved the world lavishly, righteously, and with all wisdom and justice. And all of that love has issued out through His Son. There are those, again, who would like to treat the meat of this text as nothing more than a parenthetical. There are many moderns and many throughout church history that would love to take this verse and read it in this way, to knock the middle out from it. For God so loved the world that He gave eternal life. 
But that's not what the verse says. The verse reads that God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. What God declares here to the world is that His love comes through His Son and no other way. No other means by which we can know the love of God. I, I find people all the time that say, Jay, but, but can't, listen, I know that God sent His Son to save some people, but what if you just live a moral life? Well, the first issue is there's nobody that's lived a moral life apart from Christ. But the reality is, if that were possible, then why did Jesus have to come? The only way, friends, for us to know eternal life is through the Lord Jesus Christ. John makes this so clear here. And it's why he's angered so many people. John is the, the, the fourth gospel and the one that liberal theologians uh, over the past hundred years have taken so many swings at. And, and they take swings at it because clearly here is the divinity of God defined. That He was... Well, the verse 3 verses, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. He is the Creator, and He is the Redeemer. And a lost and dying world, they, they, they don't want this Jesus. He's still rejected. He's rejected by people who will call themselves Christians, but they want to knock the sinner out of this verse and make the, 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 the religion of Christianity something that promises eternal life without ultimately being found in Christ. And John here this morning stands to warn us that there is no life apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. There are so many people that will make the accusation will will ultimately uh, what happens in John this is the the liberal argument what has happened and this is boiled down a bit but what has happened is the early church just made a mistake and deified Jesus they took this man and they made him god no friends he was God and He made Himself a man. He took on human flesh. He lived perfectly before the Father in such a way that He was the perfect sacrifice and He shed His blood on the tree that we would be given eternal life. And now we come to the, to the third movement. We've thought about the lake of the love of God that the, 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 the broad love of God towards the world, displaying His love towards the cosmos. Then we come to that issuing forth in the sending of His Son. But here in this third movement, we find these words that whoever believes in Him. Now I want you to think about a, a man who is on the verge of death. He's been in the wilderness for some time. He's thirsty. And he sees in the distance a great lake and flowing from that lake a stream. And he rushes down to the stream. And in your mind, you're thinking he's going to just jump in and start lapping up the water. But instead, he sits right next to the stream on the bank and he does nothing more than gaze upon the flowing water. So it is with many who look at this verse. God so loved the world, He's displayed His love and He's displayed it particularly in Christ. And they marvel at that but they don't drink from it in particular. And then here what we have, that whoever believes in Him is like cupping your hands together, and it's the instrument of bringing the water to yourself. Some come to this particular part of the text, that whoever believes in Him, and they say, see, 
God is putting before us a potential. They widen the scope of the verse when what is happening as we move throughout this verse is it's narrowing in and the redemptive work of God. They, they come to this particular passage, this part of John 3.16, that whoever believes in Him, and they say God is speaking here, John is writing, that it's potential that the entire world would be saved. But the reality is exactly the opposite. Only those who believe will be saved. The door is not widening, beloved. The stream is not widening. It's coming closer and closer to its full conclusion. This verse and this phrase in particular doesn't speak of a potential. It speaks of the reality that God will actually save those who believe upon the Son of God. And only those. It's exclusive in its expression. Now, we do have to reckon with the reality that all have been given permission to believe. My children have to learn this early on because their dad really, really finds these words important. May and can. Can I have a, can I have a Coke out of the refrigerator? They're, those don't exist in our house, sadly, anymore. Uh, can I have this or can I have that? Well, I don't know. Do you have the ability? They hate it when I start calculating the cost of things. That, that's, that, that's the language of ability. And now, if you're asking me for permission, the, the question is not can I, it's may I. And, and what we need to understand about the gospel is that every person may, they have permission to come to Christ. In fact, I think it's more emphatic than that throughout the entirety of the New Testament. Not only do we have permission, we have a positive command. God is calling us to repentance today. But friends, not every person has the ability to come to Christ. And that's what John has just, and ultimately Jesus has just said in the first 15 verses of John chapter 3, that before we can come to Christ, we must be born again. The church is created by the sovereign hand of God who are not born by their own will, but by the sovereign hand of God alone. The only way that we have the ability to turn in repentance and faith is when God regenerates the human heart. And it's then and then alone that man doesn't listen. We have a, we have a lot of people, and, and friends, sometimes conversion happens. Those are subjective things, so I don't want to step in it there. But, but we're given this idea that, well, try, that this is one of the most foolish things I've heard in the modern church age. Sarah, just try Jesus out. If you don't like him, no big deal. That's not how regeneration works. When God takes someone who is spiritually dead in their trespasses and sins and makes them alive to Christ, I saw a video uh, several weeks ago of a kid that was getting baptized, pastor standing in the baptistry, and this kid just cannonballs right into the water. Water goes everywhere. Fantastic. Nobody get any ideas. But friends, that's the image of what it means to come to Christ. When He regenerates us and births us anew, we don't slip down to the stream and just start little bits at a time. We jump head first. Because we know our desperate need for forgiveness. We know that without Christ, without believing upon Him, we are damned before the living God. And so here we have the image, the picture of that reality. We must be born again. We only have that ability through the sovereign work of God. And here we have the clear indication that it is only by believing and we can have life in His name. Now again, I would argue with you that the way that people come to John 3.16 and they say, see, this is a universal verse. 
It's why it's so widely used. They, they will say anyone can, anyone has the ability to believe, but that refutes what, what Jesus has just said. So the only way logically they get to that conclusion is they broaden the scope by watering down the word believe. And they come to the word belief and they make the word belief mean mentally assenting that Jesus is who he says he is. And belief just means at a youth rally when you're six, you walk an aisle, you fill out a card, you pray a prayer, then you can live your life completely parallel to the rest of the world, never thinking about God, never thinking about Christ, never seeking to live your life for him, and you will be saved. That is not the gospel. We need to consider the, 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 the depth of what it means to believe. And we've talked about this before here, but it, it, it bears repeating. There are really three ascending components to belief uh, and, and understanding what is meant here by believe. There is a basis of knowledge that has to be, uh, that has to be gathered to, to believe. That is, we have to know something. And then from that, there has to be an agreement that that knowledge is true. So I use the illustration often of a chair. If we're going to sit in that chair, I have to know that that chair is there and that those legs are going to hold somebody my size. And then when I come to the point where I really do believe that that will happen, then and only then do I act in what I think John is meaning here in the Latin it's fiducia, that is trust, by setting, by resting completely in that chair. And so the, the declaration here, the narrowing, again, from the lake of God's love to the river of God's sending or the stream of God's sending His Son into the world is that only those who rest their eternal hope in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and that alone will have eternal life. It is only through that instrumentality. It is only through that movement that we can ultimately claim that that is true biblical belief. But again, some would say, well, I agree that Jesus died and I agree that He was a moral man. Friends, that doesn't save you. That's merely the knowledge gathering and the mental assent to that knowledge. But you've not placed your finished trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and that alone. It's why so many people who claim to be Christians, I think, are still in their trespasses and sins because they say, I believe in Jesus. I believe in the stories of the Bible. I, I think that those things are true. The moral teachings are true. But ultimately, the rest is up to us. We have to morally work out our salvation. No, friends, this verse that declares to us this morning that we are to drink in the love of God and trust in His work and that alone for salvation. If you're here this morning and you, you, you depend upon your own works as the means, the, the merits for your salvation, then I promise you, you are not in Christ. You are not in the complacent, the definite love of God. And finally, so we've had this picture of the lake, the love of God, the, the stream, the narrowing, and the sending of the Son of God, and the instrumentality being the belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is dipping our hands, cupping them into the water. The final passage is really drinking all of this water in. It's, it's the drink in, in the last phrase that they, we should not perish but have everlasting life. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. But it's quite interesting, isn't it? That there's a negative here that I think often when people quote John 3.16, they don't even think about. 
And, and, and it's interesting that the negative precedes the positive, that they would not perish. There is an assumption that those outside of Christ are perished and perishing. That, that those apart from the saving belief in the Lord Jesus Christ are already dead in their trespasses and sins. Look at verses 17-20. through 20. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the, that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. They're already dead. Because he, has not believed, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light. Because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. The modern church continually wrestles with how is it that we will get people to come to Christ? And many have said, well, we need, to, we need to board up the windows. We need to turn on the fog machine. We need to turn on the lights. We need to, we need to give Brian an energy drink at 8 a.m. to make sure he's cranked up sufficiently. We need to make sure that everything sounds exactly the way that it sounds on the radio that there's listening to throughout the week that, 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 that is totally profane and full of worldly ideology. We need to make sure that people feel their way towards the gospel. We've been up to that for the better part of 150 years. It's just taken on different nuances. Friends, I'm here to tell you in independent fundamental circles this morning. In the 1950s, there was an entire mechanism by which people would, if we just do all of these things, and, and it came down to the way that we looked outwardly and all of those things. And what's interesting in that movement is my generation and, and beyond are rejecting a lot of what was taught in the 1950s and 60s. We're not going to be those people, but they pivot and they just bring new worldly ideologies right back into the church. It's a rehash of the same mistake. The way that people come to Christ is that God births them afresh and anew. And for some reason, that brings human beings to a point of despair. It shouldn't. It means that we're called to pray that God would bring people to saving belief, that God would show them the glories of Christ, that we would be the means of evangelizing, that we would be the individuals who live our lives not to entertain people, but to live under the Word of God in the truth of God, that God's glory might be known in this community. You see, the true picture in this particular passage is not of someone who is kind of wandering through the woods. The true picture is of some guy that got lost and died in the middle of the woods and it's been decades since anybody's seen him. A Christ can show up and birth that person anew, make those dead bones rise again, and then... In that new life, again, the individual runs to Christ in faith and repentance. This is a picture of one who was at one time dead, but now is lapping up the goodness and the, uh, the kindness of the living God. Do you notice here that there are two categories? One is an assumed, that, that those uh, outside of Christ are perishing. They're already spiritually dead. But then there's also the category of everlasting life. Friends, the, the reality that this passage should press into us is that everyone in here without exception is in one of those two different categories. You're either spiritually dead and perishing, 
or you're alive unto the living God. You've been given everlasting life. And the joy of this is this reality. We, some people think this. I'll wait until I'm at the hospital on death's doorstep and then I will repent and believe. Friends, you're dead already. You don't have to die physically to be spiritually dead. And a heart that says, I'll wait before I believe in Jesus. I promise you that is evidence that you're spiritually not alive. But the other more encouraging, I think, reality of this verse the glory of this verse is that you don't have to wait until you die to have everlasting life. That that's a reality the moment that God regenerates you. That God doesn't wait. It's why you can meet, and, and friends, one of my favorite categories of people are older saints who have been faithful to live in the Word of God. And who can in so many ways, and this happens in young people's lives too, but Generally, years add more illustration to the reality. They can have gone through the death of children or tragedies that would cause most of us to just fall apart. And yet, they're, they're just beset with joy and gladness. And why? Because they've been given eternal life. Because they've been given the joy of knowing the living God. We don't have to wait. And that's one of the things that I think we do. Uh, we, we, we do a disservice to the Word of God by speaking in such a way that, that, that this book is about another life. Friends, this book is about certainly the life that we have that is eternal. And, and that life will be far better than the one we have here. But when we are born again in Christ... We get to live in that reality in the here and now. We get to live in the joy of knowing Him and fellowshipping with Him. And it's such a joy that it outweighs all of the sorrows of this present age. So I want you to see the clear narrowing of this passage. The lake, to the river, to the cup, to drinking in the Gospel. The glory is ultimately found in the order of this text. You must be delivered from death before you can be given everlasting life. That's what this passage teaches. And the only way to be given life, to be born again, to be delivered from death, is to believe upon the only Son of the living God, to turn in repentance. So the question in this verse is not how, how broad is God painting His redemptive story. The question is clear and it narrows down in on you and asks this, have you been deliver delivered from death? Have you, I'm not asking this morning, have you made a profession of faith? I'm not asking this morning, have you done righteous things? I'm not asking, do you like theology? I'm asking, have you been taken from death and, and, and transferred into the kingdom of God by the work of the Spirit? Have you been washed anew? Uh, John 3.16 flows out of Jesus saying, you must be born again. And it's so odd that so many people will interpret that as being an action we take. That's not what Jesus, that's not what John is pointing to when he begins his commentary. What he's saying is that everyone is dead. It all narrows down to that. And the only those few that turn in repentance and faith will have everlasting life. So have you been delivered from death, friend? Have you come to Christ? Does this, that maybe a way to ask this question is this. Does this one verse have your name in it? There's a way in which we read this verse 
inappropriately by thinking about God things that are not true. Namely this, that God is so limited that He took His Son. There were a few times in my growing up that my daddy would chunk me in a direction. He'd pick me up and toss me. Not angrily, necessarily. But it's almost like that, that God's just hurling His Son at the world and hoping that that His redemptive work sticks. That is to rob God of His omniscience. When this verse says that God so loved the world, He is displaying His love to the entire world. But it narrows down from there because He sends His Son. And then it's only those who bend down with the instrumentality of belief and drink from those waters that will ultimately be taken from death to life. And and, and friends, the, the, the reality is that only happens by God's regenerating power. This particular verse teaches us so clearly that, that, that we need to read it not with the nebulous in mind, not with God saying, boy, I hope I get to figure out and look down the tunnel of time and see who would be born again. No, 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 no. That again is to rob Him of His omniscience. This verse should be read in such a way that we can read our individual names into it. Because before He sent His Son, He knew those that He would, he would ultimately redeem. And so the question is, does the verse read this way? For God so loved Jay that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Does it read, for God so loved Sarah? Does it read, for God so loved Dion? You have to ask the question, have I been born again? And that can only be answered ultimately between you and the living God. If you are in Christ today, beloved, you have a greater joy walking out of this place than any person on the face of the planet. And that is to know that God loved you so much, not because He looked for your merit. He did not look and try to discern if Ray Douglas was a moral enough man to save him. He he did not look and, and, and consider whether Sarah would make the right decision or not. He looked upon His creation. He set His love upon all of those that He intended to save in such a way that their eyes are open in a moment by the regenerating power of the Spirit. And in that moment, those individuals run to the river of His love and drink in the goodness of the glory of Christ. And so we will for all of eternity. Would you pray with me? Father, we come before you today so thankful for this definite verse. So thankful that it clearly shows that you have demonstrated your love to the entire world in a specific act of sending your Son, and you are redeeming only those who come in repentance and faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, if there's those here today who are religiously deceived into believing that they are in Christ but in fact aren't, I pray that You would bring them to repentance, that You would birth them anew. Father, we know that Nicodemus was a religious man, and yet he was outside of the kingdom. We know that it's only by Your power, by Your work, that people can have a redeeming relationship and fellowship with You. And so we ask, Father, in our midst, that You would do that work. Father, I pray that You would help us who are in Christ to be faithful to proclaim Your Word and live in light of it. I pray, Father, that we would be students of Your Word. 
That, that we would desire more and more an understanding of the things that You have given to Your church through the apostles and the prophets. Father, I pray uh, that we would not diminish the glory of what it is that You've displayed Your love to the world, and yet we, we lament the reality that in that grand display, the world has yet rejected You. But You've redeemed a particular people that one day we will stand before You as a complete world of people redeemed. And we will worship You for all of eternity. We long for that day, Lord. Help us to live our lives in the joy of the everlasting life that You've given us here, but to long for the completion and fulfillment of it in the day of Your appearing. 